Welcome back. This is conversation number nine, and we're going to discuss a couple of topics. The first, the murder of a young African-American woman and the fixing of this murder case. The details of her death are disturbing, and the greed around her death is equally disturbing. And You'll understand why as Bob explains the story. It's also interesting to note that some of the players involved in this story are today under scrutiny from the federal government. This takes us back to the Burks. Ed Burke, who we've discussed previous and who is currently under some 14-count indictment, and also his wife, who is the recently retired Supreme Court Justice of the state of Illinois. When we initially recorded this conversation, it was late in spring of 2022, and at this moment, we are in January of 2023, and Ann Burke has decided to resign, and I'll read a little bit about that as the conversation goes, but this murder case involving this young woman involves the Burks once again. There's that conversation, and then we also dive deeper into discussing Pat Marcy and how he was able to become the power broker that he was, how he filled this void or created this job. It's very interesting to understand these details. So we're going to start this conversation talking about Justice Comerford. Bob will mention Greylord, and for those that don't know, Greylord is in reference to Operation Greylord. Operation Greylord, reading Wikipedia, was an investigation conducted jointly by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, the Chicago Police Department, Internal Affairs Division, and the Illinois State Police into corruption in the judiciary of Cook County, Illinois. The FBI named the investigation Operation Greylord after the curly wigs worn by British justices. And it's also important to know that Greylord was well underway before Bob went in to talk to the feds about what he knew about the first ward and all the goings on of the mafia and corruption. So here is conversation nine. And we start by talking about Justice Comerford. Was Comerford someone that was ultimately outed during Greylord? Did he ever have a... No, no. And the reason was because they knew all about Greylord when it was going on. When Greylord was going on, Terry Hake was a prosecutor, became an FBI agent, and, and, you know, and, and wanted to cooperate to make Greylord. I knew Terry Hake. It was, I was a good friend of his. Uh, at that time. And what happened was Terry Hake saw how corrupt it was and wanted to help clean up the system. So he made contact with federal authorities and he he was sworn in as an FBI agent. And when he did, he he had been a prosecutor there. And what had happened was during that time, he took a leave of absence from there to go to the FBI. And who did he work for? He worked under Mike Ficarro. He was a prosecutor working under Mike Picaro. That's the one that Pat Marcy had me meet to help. You know, he, that was the one who was the head of the organized crime section. That was the one that Terry Hake worked for him. And then when he came back, for whatever reason, he told Mike Picaro what he was doing. Not knowing that Picaro was on the inside and the enemy, so to speak. Well, certainly not knowing it. You know, not knowing it. No. Terry Hake was a complete square. So Pat Marcy knew what was going on from day one. 
and was happy with it because all these judges that got indicted when a new judge was going to be made, Pat Marcia was collecting 25000 for pay, for making a judge. That's one of the things we indicted him on. Pat Marcy had become the most powerful mobster of all time because Pat Marcy absolutely controlled the entire, not just the city, but the state. Because I told you, during the Harry Allerman trial, with everybody knowing how corrupt Maloney was and all, Pat Marcy had already arranged to have him named a judge by the Supreme Court. He, you know, Harry Allerman told me, you know, he wants to represent me on this because he's going to be named a judge by the Supreme Court. And we saw now, even the Supreme Court right now, the Supreme Court in Illinois, the chief judge is, uh, is Ann Burke, the one I wrote about in my book that was fixing murder and molesting cases with her husband, Eddie, who basically was our gopher running the entire, the entire uh, financial system there when I started working undercover and started building cases. I wasn't a stool pigeon. I was what they called a operative because I was helping them make the cases. The first case that they wanted me to do, they, they set it up and it almost blew up because the judge found somebody guilty on, on something. And I told them, well, when they wanted me to do the first case, I told them this wasn't going to work because it stinks. This whole thing stinks the way you're setting it up. And, uh, and it didn't work. I made a whole new case out of it and we got convictions in those people anyhow. But I found out while I was working undercover about three or four different things that were going on, cases that were being fixed. And one of the cases that I found out was being fixed, there was a judge, Judge Ciesler. It was an older judge. Uh, he was from Eddie Burke's ward. He was made a judge through the first ward. If I had become a good friend of his, uh, he would he would contact me a lot. I'd be in his I'd be in his chambers almost every day when I was at 26th Street because I would use his telephone and make a lot of my calls because I had one of those cells that I think it cost about a dollar, a dollar a minute to use it. So I saved a lot of money by, by using his chambers. And, uh, he would ask me a lot of times for advice on motions. I had won a jury trial in this case and he would talk to me all the time about cases and, and ask me my opinion and what I thought about motions that had been filed with him. I'm in his chambers one day. And he says to me, this is while I'm working for the Fed, with the feds. And he says to me, you know, I'm real nervous, Bob. And I said, why, what's the matter? He said, well, they want me to fix this case. Uh, and I don't want to do it. He said that Eddie Burke told me it's the first ward. And he knows the first ward is the mob. And he's terrified. Uh, and I said, what kind of a case? And he said, it's a, a black gay guy who was accused of murder. The facts of the case, I find out, were brutal. Uh, it was a gay black guy who had married a girl who was a model with a Jet magazine. And uh, he married her. He got a $250,000 life insurance policy on her with a double indemnity clause. About a month after the policy was in effect, he calls up the insurance people to make sure the policy is in effect. And uh, and then a day or two after that, uh, the wife is found stabbed to death. I want to pause here for a moment and read from some court filings in regards to this case to give you a little more texture as Bob moves through telling this part of the story. This is directly from some case files that you can find online, and I'll put a link to them inside the episode details. And I'm quoting. 
Herbert Kamen's case was a murder case in which it was alleged that Herbert Kamen, a gay black man, murdered his wife with the help of his gay lover by stabbing her over 40 times and leaving the knife sticking out of her mouth. It was alleged that he murdered his wife to obtain the proceeds of a $250,000 life insurance policy. And the woman that was murdered was Carol Jean Despolinay. But let me get back to Bob so he can finish filling in the details of this story. Uh, they lived in a housing, in one of these housing complexes, and a security guard saw this guy, this gay guy and his black lover, sneaking out of the place after the killing. He gets arrested and he gets charged with murder, among other things. The lawyer in the case is Pat Tuitt, one of the so-called deans of the uh, criminal lawyers. Eddie comes in to see him and tells him he wants him to fix the case. And the judge balks and the judge doesn't want to do it. What had happened was the case initially, Pat had taken the case to trial in that courtroom before a jury. There was 11 to 1 for a conviction. And there was somebody in the jury that said, he's a nice looking guy. I couldn't find him guilty. So now he wanted the judge to fix the case. And the judge said, no. What, why? He wasn't going to do it. Do you know why? Well, well, I know why, because it was a brilliant, because he was a, he was an honest judge. No, but why did they um, want to, why did they want to fix this case? So they could get the insurance money. It turns out he had this $250,000 double indemnity policy worth half a million dollars. He wanted him to fix the case and he wouldn't do it. So then they said, I'm going to file for a substitution. He says, I'm afraid, Bob. He said, I'm afraid not to because, you know, something's going to happen to me and I've got to, he's got a daughter that's a clerk there. When he told me happened was, he said he was come to work every day and he'd come to work with his daughter, who was a clerk there at 26 in California. When he talked to me, it was the same day it had happened. He said, on my way to work today, he said, and he was the chairman of the finance. He was, a, he was an alderman. He was also chairman of the finance committee. We had made him the chairman of the judicial slating committee. So he's got control of all the money there in Chicago and I think parts of Cook County. We're talking billions of dollars. He's the one who picks every judge. It's a lot of power concentrated to one he's the one who selects. He's the one who selects every judge. Anyhow, he says he stops him in the limousine told his daughter to go back, you know, into, into the limousine. And that's when he basically touched, he said, the first ward wants the case fixed. And, and, and since you're not going to fix it, we want it, We want you to substitute off the case. In other words, you know, let the case go somewhere else. I know when he tells me that I know where the case is going to go. Cause by now Tom Maloney is a judge now at this time, I know exactly where the case is going to go. I know the case is going to go to Tom Maloney. Uh, but but he said he bought and, and I lied to him. I said the first ward's not involved in this. And it turns out it wasn't either. Eddie just said the first ward to terrorize the judge. Eddie also tells the judge, if you don't, you know, I made you, and I'll get you knocked off the bench if you don't do it. Uh, but again, he doesn't want to do it. And so I tell him, don't worry about it. I said that's bullshit. After a day or two, I'm in there with him again, and he says, Bob, he said the other judges are pressuring me. Pat Tewitt then files a motion trying to say, I, I don't know what the basis was, but he's trying to force him off the case, uh, indicating, you know, he can't get a fair trial before him or whatever. And they turn that down. And, and now I'm reporting all this to the, you know, to, to the U.S. attorney's office. You're, you're not wearing a wire at this point. I'm not wearing a wire that day when I'm in his court and I'm not wearing a wire when I'm talking to him because, you know, I'm, I'm not authorized to it. I'm just telling them what's going on. 
So now he tells me that these other judges in the building are telling him, let the case go, let the case go. I mean, it tells you what the system is all about there. The other, the others are telling him to let the, uh, let the case go. Finally, he just, you know, weakens and he does. He allows the substitution. When, when I was partners with Johnny, uh, on a number of occasions, I had dinner with Eddie Burke. Eddie Burke used to kiss my ass to be my friend and to get close to me. This is when I was partners with Johnny. Even though he's the one with all the power, he's over there told what to do by Pat DeLeo and by the others. I had dinner a couple of times with him back at my restaurant at Greco's. A couple of occasions when Eddie would come and bring his wife. At that time, she was still in law school. So I was real close to, to both of them, and I liked both of them. They both seemed like super nice people, you know. But now, when I see that they're involved in some, in fact, even at that time, when she talked about being a lawyer, the only reason was to get in there and to be able to, you know, take over. Uh, she wanted to be a judge, and, and they eventually made her a judge. I'm curious about what's going on. And the case now goes to, to Maloney. They're not going to stop it. They tell me I can't do anything until something is until it's all over, and then we'll do something. The meaning the feds are telling you there's nothing you can do. Well, when I say the feds, the one who's running the show is Anton Belukas, because he was going to be representing Eddie Burke and these people down the road. And I knew that, because at that time, Pat Marcy's connection with the federal system was with the head of Jenner and Block, who the ex-U.S. attorney, Tom Sullivan. That was their guy that was taking care of their business in federal court. And in return, they were giving them millions of dollars of city business. Now, the case does get fixed, and Tom Maloney finds him not guilty. In terms of the money situation, what happened now, and it, it, only, it only didn't go through because I surfaced at that time. This was in 89. Uh, this was going on in, in like in 88, I believe, or early, or the early part of 89. It's getting to the point where they're so worried about me. And there are so many people that, you know, that are getting suspicious of me because of things that are going on around me uh, with the mob people uh, that I'm going to be leaving town. When I left town, Eddie Burke had made contact with Johnny Diarco's office. And they were in the process of trying to collect the money, the insurance money, because initially they balked on paying it because of the suspicion of his being involved in the crime. And what they had already done, Johnny DiArco, I told you before, was the chairman of the insurance committee. The DeLeo DiArco law firm was hired by Pat Tuitt, who was representing this guy. What he had gotten as part of his fee was he had gotten the insurance policy turned over to him. And they were they were about to collect that money until I, until I surfaced, and then, then they dropped the lawsuit. The defendant talks to his lawyer and says, I'll give you this insurance policy if you can fix the case for me, or the lawyer says, we're going to get you off, but you got to give us the insurance money. Do you know how that inner working of that happened? And do I have that accurate yeah. in that the machine, the mobsters, Marcy, Diarco, saw the money. They don't care that this woman's murdered. They don't care that this guy's a murderer. They're like, there's money here. Let's fix this so we can get our hands on the insurance. They were not involved in any of the early parts of that. I'm sure they knew nothing about what was going on with this. Obviously, when Pat Tuitt was representing the person, this guy only had so much money to give him, probably not a lot. When the judge said he would not recluse himself and, and say goodbye to the case, Ann Burke comes in and files an appearance on the case before Judge Seeslick. And she says on the record to Judge Seeslick, Judge Seeslick, my husband basically made you. Uh, I'm involved in the case now, so you should, you, you should recluse yourself. 
they kept pushing this to go someplace where they knew they could fix it to make all the money. They could make a half a million dollars. But in order to get that done, when Pat Tewitt obviously tried to do it himself, when he tried to go you know, and collect that money from the insurance and he couldn't get it done, that's when he went to Pat DeLeo, to the Cougar DeLeo firm, turned it over to them. They had filed the action. And I guarantee it would have been done. But even if it, it was a longer period of time while I was still there and they didn't know that I was working with the government, it would have been done. You know, the way the system was set up to clean it up was a joke for these people because they had control of the entire system. And just one more question. In order for them to get their hands on the insurance money, they needed this guy to be innocent because if he's guilty, the insurance company's not paying out. So No, no, certainly they won't. Exactly. So they needed his innocence, so they fixed the case. The money flows. Under normal circumstances, everything was on the legit. Even if he was found not guilty, even if he was found as he was, they could not get the money because there was all these indications he was involved in it and the insurance company would not pay. You're not found innocent. You're found not guilty. There's a big difference. Not guilty does not mean you're innocent. Not guilty means they cannot prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. When they got a not guilty, yes, they thought that they could get it, but they couldn't get it. And when Tuit himself contacted the insurance company, they declined to pay because there's a suspicion that he was involved in it. And that's when they turned it over to, to Cougar Dulio Diarco. And th- this was going on just prior to me, you know, to me leaving. This concludes the conversation about Herbert Kamen, but I wanted to shed a little bit more detail on his case. So I'm quoting from documentation online again. Also of note, there is a lawsuit between Kamen and Metropolitan Life Insurance Company that I'll provide in the chapter details as well. But here's that further detail. This case was originally assigned to Judge Arthur Seeslick. Seeslick lived in the 14th Ward. After a further mistrial because of a hung jury, Ed Burke approached Judge Seeslick and told him to withdraw from the case. When the judge refused to withdraw from the case, he told the judge, quote, what's the big deal? It's only a effing N-word, unquote. Ann Burke also requested the judge withdraw from the case, saying, quote, my husband was the one who put you on the bench, end quote. When the judge finally withdrew from the case due to media pressure initiated by the attorneys, the case was assigned to Judge Tom Maloney. Judge Maloney dismissed the case in a bench trial. Cooley revealed that he was wearing a wire when the aforementioned events took place such that the FBI was fully informed. Cooley revealed that he was in communication with Judge Seeslick and he tried to encourage the judge not to let the case go. He also reported to the feds that the case would be assigned to Judge Maloney who would fix the case. And let's not forget who Judge Maloney is. Judge Tom Maloney is the only judge in U.S. history convicted of fixing a murder trial. He received a 15-year prison sentence. There's no indication the Illinois Supreme Court ever investigated Justice Ann Burke in response to this complaint. We're going to move forward and talk more about Pat Marcy and how he gained control over the first ward. Can we go back to Marcy for a moment? Who did he answer to? Nobody. So this was a guy, if you read about him, 
and his history online or where have you. This is a guy. Read nothing. Well, he came out of Al Capone's operation. But does a guy like this, he just stays a lot around for so long that he fills a gap or fills a void and then what? builds his operation inside this machine. So did the buck stop with him? Was he paying anybody off or was he just? The, He's it. He is it. He is the guy. The way, the way it happened. The way he he wound up being the secretary, I, I think I told you before, before the whole mob structure changed, the entire structure changed, and it changed right at the time I got involved with these people. What they called the Young Turks started putting, everybody had to pay street tax and the rest of it. And the reason being, these guys were getting angry because they're making nickels and dimes, and a few of the top bosses are making all the money. They're getting all the city contracts. And they're getting, you know, they're they're making all the money and they pay these guys nickels and dimes. That's why they started with collecting the street tax where, where we're talking tens of millions of dollars every month are, are changing hands. And these guys are getting a piece of it. What happened was, and, you know, Sam Giancana had sat in jail for a year. And I told you during that time, that's when I met him. When Pauly Tanzillo had used me to get in to visit with him and bring him his sandwiches and stuff over in, in the county jail. When he went to Mexico. And during that period, more and more it became organized where uh, the bosses were no longer in charge you know, of territories. Everybody had people they put under their control and whatever. And when he came back and these, these things had changed, all these things had changed. He was obviously, you know, still running around doing, you know, doing some stuff he shouldn't have been doing. On one occasion, when he was still one of the main people in charge, probably right there with Iupa and, and Arcardo. Who I, who I met a number of times, but never talked to, never was, you know, really, I, I would see him at different dinners and at different functions. And I had been introduced as Johnny DiArco's partner, and this is our guy and whatever. The day after I left, Iupa was picked up on a phone call to Blackie Pasoli. This guy's been wearing a wire for a period of time. He's going to destroy all that we work to build. He said he can do it. This but is anyhow, Joey Iupa talking about you? Yes, talking about me. Uh, Jimmy Wagner was the one who told me that the Jimmy Wagner was the head of organized crime at the FBI. He said, we intercepted a phone call. He had called Blackie Pasoli and he said to him, it was the day because it was a major, major story, obviously, when, you know, when, when I surfaced. And in fact, the attorney general flew in from Washington to announce it. That's how important it was. He, he indicated that, you know, if this guy's been wearing a wire for a period of time, he can destroy all that we've built. Johnny DiArco Sr. was having lunch with uh, Giancana over out in the western suburbs. And Romer, who was chasing Giancana and following him and whatever, was there. And Johnny shook his hand. Hi, how are you, Johnny? And Johnny, by being a politician, shook his hand. And Arcardo apparently went nuts. And at that time, Johnny D, Johnny Diarco was the alderman and the committeeman of the first ward, so he was in charge of all that stuff. He was in charge of all the elections and all the rest of it. When that happened, I was told that Johnny wound up in the hospital. Johnny Senior wound up in the hospital and had a heart attack. And what happened after that was then he resigned his position as alderman, still remained committeeman. That's when Pat Marcy was sent over and was made the first ward secretary. There's no such thing as a first ward secretary. Fred Rohde wound up becoming the alderman, and uh, and Pat Marcy became the first ward secretary. But in reality, he basically took over everything. 
He's the one that took charge of everything. And Johnny was more or less like a figurehead. You know, you know the mentality of some of these morons. He was furious that this guy, you know, would, would shake his hand, would be friendly with him. But he's a politician. So that's how Pat Marcy, you know, wound up being the secretary. But in reality, Pat Marcy had con- took control over everything. Uh, the alderman kissed his ass. He, in fact, Alderman Rohde treated me like I was his boss. Pat had taken control. They reported to Alderman Rohde, who reported to him. When I was uh, wearing a wire, when I was making a payoff to, to the alderman on a property deal, Pat Marcy came walking back there behind counselors. And, and when he saw us, it's all there on tape. And when he saw the two of us, said, what's going on here? And Freddie, uh, oh, I was going to tell you about this, Pat. And, you know, and then Pat takes over. Well, you know, you'll do this and you'll do that and you'll charge them so much. And Pat Pat himself on tape, he knows everybody pays to get the uh, property changes and to get the license changes and the rest of it. Again, this is ultra important. Pat Marcy was the one that the skim money was being brought to. And I I saw something on TV a couple of days ago with those same same Jagoff FBI agent that said they turned me. And he's talking about the skim in Las Vegas. He says, yeah, and the skim money was turned over to, or to Icardo. The skim money was brought to Pat Marcy. Well, I was involved with the hearings. That's when I got to be friendly, although I didn't like him as a person with the guy that was bringing the money. The one who was bringing the skim money back to Chicago, I was there in the back room with him, and we talked about it. He was there giving, giving you know, testimony under oath. I'm going to pause here to name the person that Bob is referencing. It's Michael Corbett. Corbett was a police chief from a western suburb of Chicago called Willow Springs and was involved in a lot of mafia activity. Bob is referencing when he turned state's evidence and was testifying. He had served ultimately a lengthy amount of time in a federal prison and became an informant. A lot of interesting stories around Corbett, but that's who Bob is referencing. Let's go back to the story. As to how, how he was bringing the skim money from Las Vegas, what he would do, he said, he would fly and he'd have, he'd have suitcases, you know, with the money. And what he would do is he would fly into Salt Lake City and then he would fly into Chicago and he would go to Pat Marcy's house. At that time, uh, originally, Pat Marcy lived in, uh, where did he live? In Desplaines. He would bring the money to his place in Desplaines, and later on, Pat Marcy moved out south, just in, in that, out south, just south of where I lived in, in Indian Head Park. But he moved into a cure complex there. He would bring the money to Pat, and Pat Marcy was the one who distributed the money. What I know Pat Marcy was also in charge of, Pat Marcy was the one that that was giving all the money out to those casinos to open up the casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, what they were doing with the pension fund, Alan Dorfman would be over there. And the one that was handler for Alan Dorfman was uh, Lombardo, Joey Lombardo. Joey the clown Lombardo. Joey, Joey was the one who was in charge of Alan Dorfman. Pat Marcy would get 5% in cash of the loan, and and he'd pass out part of that money to the other people that were involved. Who exactly? I don't know. Oh, I'm sure Arcardo, Ayupa, and maybe some other people, but he would get 5%, and they they would tell them exactly who they wanted to get the loans to, and what they would do is they would, a lot of them would open up what we called phone booths, Alan Dorfman. They would open up a phony operate a business 
and they would apply for a loan. They would apply for a loan of maybe three, four, five hundred thousand dollars from the Teamsters, and they would get the loan. And the office would be just some little cubby hole. We we joked around calling it being open up a phone booth. It'd be for a construction company or for some other other company like that. And uh, they would make a few of the payments, and then they would file bankruptcy, and that's the end of it. Pat was in charge of all of that. They'd be over there at counselors all the time. And then they'd head upstairs to that private room that they had uh, where they'd discuss all that. Pat Marcy, there was no one above him, but he had equals. He was kind of the top of the food chain with with uh, Accardo and Iupa. These guys all worked at the same level. They kind of kept... They all had to... See, because the way he had insulated himself, he was the one that controlled all these other people. If, if anything ever happened to Pat, the whole system would, would collapse. Ayupa, I, I saw Ayupa a couple of times would come over, uh, not in the counselors. He would never come into counselors. He would, when he would come in, he would go to that private room. He wouldn't even walk through counselors. When he would go there, on two occasions, I, I saw him there. Probably came there a lot more, but on a couple of occasions, I happened to be right there in that lobby area when I saw him going, going upstairs. And I know he wasn't going to the ward office because I, I had to go up there on one of the occasions I had to go up there it was maybe 15 minutes after I saw him walk in the building and uh, he wasn't there. But I told you before they had this other, other office with all black, you know, all black windows and they had it swept every single day for, you know, for bugs, you know, the mobsters would come and meet and discuss who knows what, but that's where a lot of these other meetings took place where they were passing out the contracts. These people had to come to Pat when they wanted to get something done. In other words, people came to them, you know, with a serious problem. Uh, they would have, they would contact Pat, but that's why Pat never had a bodyguard. When Pat ran around, he drove himself. Pat never had bodyguards. He didn't need them. He was protected because nobody could kill him or would want to because he's the one who did everything for him. The, the only ones who had the real power were the ones who were able to actually talk to him. People like people like Marco D'Amico and the others, some of the others, they couldn't talk to Pat. Uh, they weren't allowed to. If they needed something or whatever, or a favor in some direction, or wanted to get something done, I'm the one who would be taught who would ask him for him. They were not allowed to talk to him. He had isolated himself in the sense that he was the entire power structure. With the elections in particular, I told you everything was done up there at his office. But Pat really protected himself because you never in the papers. You never saw anything saying Pat Marcy running the first war. They always said Johnny DiArco. But after that incident happened with uh, with Giancana, Johnny was like semi-retired. And that's why, as I said, in fact, he wound up at the, the hospital he wound up with was the Thorac Hospital. And when he had his heart attack after that. Play, play armchair psychologist. Is this guy highly intelligent? Is this somebody oh, yeah. that could have gone to like Harvard Business School? And this guy's a mastermind, right? I mean, this guy about- was very, very sharp. The way he, the way he, I don't think it could have been anywhere near as powerful, you know, before he got involved. Because when he was involved, as I said, they controlled everything. If there was a buck to be made, and, and I told you what they did too, you know, talk about a genius scheme uh, with the, uh, you know, with the the million dollar contracts and the rest for doing word work, road work, and for doing construction or whatever. You know, number one, they would find out what the lowest bid was. They would tell, you know, in fact, these guys would meet there, and Eddie Burke was one of the ones that would be there a lot, you know, for those meetings. Because 
because he was with the finance committee and he took all his orders from uh, from the first war. He took all his orders from them. And I'm sure, you know, any money he made, a piece of it had to go back to them. Uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't take a crap without getting their OK. He had arranged everything so much that it all depended on him. Is he a sociopathic type of character? I mean, clearly he's having people killed. I believe I believe he is, as I say. He's probably the only one I feared in the sense that he could give you a smile and then slice your throat. He had an air about him. And when he would bark, you know, get angry. Uh, and I'd be there when he'd get angry at people. They they cowered. This is not a guy with a sunny disposition. He's not like Joey the Clown Lombardo, who's known for joking around. This no. Is, this is got, a very calculating, kind of cold guy who's a stone-cold fucking operator. Very, very cold. Not, not friendly at all. What made him tick? Was it was it the power and the money? All of it. And then and the power came. Not not when I'm talking about power. You saw what happened to his good friend Dominic Sinise. Dominic Sinise, the head of the Teamsters Union. You know, here's a guy head of the Teamsters Union who's meeting with him. You know, two three times a week. Appears to be his closest friend. When they told him to step down from the union after like 20 years, and he didn't, they shot him in the face. A guy shot him with a shotgun in the face, uh, nearly blew half his face off. That's Pat Marcy. And what was so ironic about that was shortly after it happened, it happened, you know, this, this was about 89, I think, when it happened. It was the last benefit party that Johnny had. In fact, I was wearing a wire. I was working, you know, undercover, and I, and I went with my friend, I wish he was still alive, Danny uh, Albrecht. I went over to the uh, the Ambassador West, places, I mean, full of people, and I'm there a short while, and who comes walking in but Dominic Sinise with his face all bandaged. It was all of the papers where he had been shot. He comes in there, pays some money, hands over some money as a, as a gift as he walks through the tables, walks all the way back around to, you know, because there were people all standing there, and I saw him, and, you know, oh, gee, hi, Dom. And, and before I could say any more, he just, turns around and, and walks out of the place. As I say, really bizarre. That's and That wouldn't have been done without, you know, it was obviously Pat Marcy telling him, after all these years, we want somebody else to take over. And he had control over the unions. He had control over, like I say, the Teamsters Pension Fund. In fact, I know who killed Dorfman or had him killed. Uh, it was Gray Long. He was one of the mob bosses up there in the uh, west of, the, of Chicago. He was under Caesar. The reason they killed him was because he was arrested along with Joey Lombardo. The two of them were arrested, and they both had a million-dollar bond. He got himself bonded out, and Joey wanted to get bonded out, and he wanted Dorfman to do it because he couldn't legitimately show where the money came from to bond himself out now, and Dorfman wouldn't do it. Dorfman said no. Now they were they were worried that he might cooperate. They were worried that uh, Pat was worried. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was, he didn't say who, but I'm sure it was Pat, the one that was worried he might start cooperating because he was facing like ten or fifteen years, and uh, and for that reason, that's why they killed him. They didn't want him mentioning that you know he was passed. The money was going through. You know the bribes were all going through Pat Marcy. I want to pause here and shed a little more light on Alan Dorfman. Alan Melnick Dorfman. Born January 6, 1923, deceased January 20th, 1983. Dorfman was an American insurance agency owner and a consultant to the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Central Pension Fund. He was a close associate of longtime IBT president Jimmy Hoffa and associated with organized crime via the Chicago outfit. Dorfman was convicted on several felony counts and was murdered in 1983. An interesting note about Dorfman, and I'm reading 
further from his Wikipedia page, he enlisted in the U.S. Marines and earned a silver star at the Battle of Iwo Jima. Tells you how tough this guy must have been. A little bit about his murder. In 1979, the FBI launched Operation Pendorf for penetration of Alan Dorfman. The FBI installed hidden microphones in the office of Dorfman's insurance agency. As a result of information obtained from the wiretaps, a federal grand jury in Chicago indicted Dorfman and four others in May 1981. Dorfman was subsequently convicted in December 1982, along with Teamsters President Roy Lee Williams and Chicago Outfit Enforcer Joseph Lombardo of conspiring to bribe Howard Cannon, the Democratic senator from Nevada, to oppose deregulation of over-the-road trucking industry. It goes on further and details his murder. So three days before his sentencing, scheduled for January 23rd, 1983, Alan Dorfman was murdered in the parking lot outside the Lincolnwood Hyatt in Lincolnwood, Illinois. Described as a gangland-style execution, the murder was presumably intended to keep him from cooperating with authorities to avoid a possible 55-year prison sentence. He was with longtime friend Erwin Wiener, a known associate of many Chicago mob figures. Wiener was not injured in the incident. So that's a little more detail about Alan Dorfman, his life, and his murder. This concludes Conversation 9 episode 10 coming soon. Stay connected and thanks for listening as always.